0: What does a prophet look like? What do they say and what do they do? Most people, I think, when they think of a prophet, think of a fairly wild-looking person out in the wilderness somewhere, shouting, probably with a really large beard. And those are the kind of characteristics of prophets that people kind of think, oh, prophet, that's probably what it looks like. And there's some justification for that. John the Baptist I mean, we assume he had a beard. It's taken as a given. I think in that culture, he lived out in the wilderness. He wore camel's hair. He ate locusts and honey. And he called people broods of vipers when they came to hear him preach. And so it's not entirely without merit that we think when we think prophet, we kind of think that. But actually when you look through all the prophetic books and the books that record the actions of the prophets, which are all the way through the Bible, you see a whole variety of people. You see men and women, you see rich and poor, you see highly educated deep thinkers, and you see rustic all-action types. You see people with messages of hope and messages of warning and messages of judgment. And so because, as usual, God's people are diverse, we should expect prophets uh, to be diverse as well. But it's really important for us to think this through also because we are called to be a prophetic people. That's what this preaching series is all about. If you're a Christian, you're called to be a prophet. You're called to be prophetic. So this isn't just a kind of, I mean, I don't know what a prophet's like. We're asking a question of what are you meant to be like if you're a Christian? And what are we meant to be like as a church together? And maybe you're visiting us today. You're not a Christian. You're just curious. This is a really important question for you too. Because prophets reveal the nature of God, and they speak on God's behalf. And so what a prophet says and does, tells you, or at least should do, tells you a lot about what God is like. What God is saying, what God is doing, and what God is saying to you. And so I want us to look today um, at Isaiah 42, which gives us uh, a description of the ultimate prophet, and we're going to see from this what is essential to living a prophetic life. Because if we just think, oh, it's the John the Baptist thing, well, actually, you know, growing a beard and wearing rustic kind of clothes and eating authentic and unusual food, they're all on trend right now. And so if you go, if, if is that it? No, there's a lot more to it. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights... I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So I want to look today at the characteristics of the prophet and the message of the prophet. What the prophet does and what the prophet says. We're going to start with the characteristics that we've seen here in this. And actually, they're quite different from that uh, cliché of the angry, shouty person. This isn't what we see going on in Isaiah 42. If you read in verse 2, we're told that this prophet will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. It's not that he's never going to say anything. It's not that he doesn't have an opinion. We're going to see that very clearly later. But in uh, the context of this passage, uh, this servant is being compared uh, with a a nearby king who was soon to invade uh, the promised land and really destroy God's people and trample all over them and do so proudly and arrogantly and for his own glory. And God says, my prophet's not like that. He doesn't do these things because he wants to be known. He does what he does because he's called by God. And because a prophet's called by God and loved by God... It's God's agenda that they're following. They're not trying to prove themselves. They're trying to demonstrate who he is. So they don't have to shout about it. They don't have to. They're not even anxiously trying to win people over to it. They're just being faithful to what God has called them to do. Often we see people who might think of themselves as prophets because they're quite shouty and because they're making a lot of noise. But the question is, why are you doing that? Are you doing that in order to convince yourself that this is right or because of the urgency of what God has actually said to you? And this prophet doesn't need to shout. But they know that they're called by God. They know that they're loved by God. And so that brings a certainty and a conviction, but also a humility. They're not making this up by themselves. They're saying, God has spoken to me. I've got to tell you this. They're impelled by God. And then in verse 3, we see about them these famous words. And they're famous because so many of us want them to be true. And at some point in our life, we're like, please, please, would verse 3 of Isaiah 42 be true? A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. All of us experience that weakness, that struggle, when we realise we've made a mess of things. What does the man of God? What is the woman of God? How do they respond to that? Do they laugh? Do they scorn? Do they say, I told you so? Well, this prophet comes to those who are in that kind of state and brings them hope instead and brings them grace. There's a gentleness which brings hope. This isn't some loud and proud superstar who you can, you know, you can't even approach. They're over there somewhere and you're like, I'm over here, I'm a mess and they're shouting and stuff. You think, man, if only I could be near them. No, no, they actually seek you out. When they, say, when they see the weakness, when they see the struggle, they seek you out. That's what this prophet does. We've been um, we've been hearing about this this morning. So wonderful how God has led us uh, through the contributions, through the band responding to that. It says in uh, says in verse uh, seven, verse six and seven. This prophet is going to be a light for the nations. They're going to open the eyes that are blind. They're going to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, I was just going to go over this, but clearly God wants to speak to us more about this today because that's been what the entirety of our worship has been about. That's what this prophet does. People can be in prison for various reasons. It might have been their fault. It might not have been their fault. In your own life, the things you've done that are a mess, you think, well, that was entirely my fault. And other things have happened, you think, I mean, that really, I I didn't have much to do with that at all. That was circumstances, it was other people. And yet here I feel uh, chained, uh, trapped, imprisoned uh, by myself and by life. If you just feel like I turn to the right, no, that doesn't work. Turn to the left, that doesn't work. I want to try and break out of these patterns of living that I live in that are destructive to myself and to others, that are frustrating to me. If you're experiencing anything like that, that's the kind of thing that this prison metaphor is talking about. And we're told today, and we're told in God's word timelessly, that a prophet of God brings liberty to those who are in prison. Brings hope and light to those who are in darkness. I'm going to explain how that happens later on. But for now, as we're looking at the characteristics of the prophet, we see this is exactly what a prophet does. Goes to the dark places, goes to the hard places finds the people who are there, brings them out. This is what a prophet does. But not just on an individual level. There's individual hope here. There's also societal hope. Three times we're told that this prophet is going to bring justice to the whole world. It's a concern of God that things go right that things are fair. When you read the Old Testament laws, you see again and again, God is speaking about there being fairness for all and there being protection for the vulnerable. It's what God's law is about in a big way. And so the prophets, as you read through them in the Old Testament, are often saying, you have forgotten to do this. You may even still be doing your religious actions, the prophets say, but you're acting unjustly. There is slavery in your town. There is unfairness in your trading. And because of that, God says, I don't care about the worship because this isn't right yet. And so it's at the heart of a prophet's concern that there be justice done in the land. And so to be a prophetic people, to demonstrate the heart of God, is to show this caring and also strong love for individuals and our communities. Because it's kind of okay uh, to sit here and think, oh yeah, I'd love to be more caring to other people. I'd love to extend this help. How could I possibly do that? Because you know the people to whom you're going to try and extend that help you know you can't do that by yourself. You need the power of God. A prophet doesn't go in their own strength. They go in the strength of God. Verse one, God says, this is my chosen. And he says, I put my spirit upon him. This is how they'll achieve this, God says. I will give them my empowering Holy Spirit. They can't do it by themselves, but with me, they can, and I will give them that grace. There's a contrast in verses three and four. So, verse 3 talks about the bruised reed and the faintly burning wick. And then in verse 4, God says, Well, my prophet will not grow faint. So, there's a faintly burning wick, but the prophet won't be faint. Then it talks about the prophet not being discouraged, but the word is actually bruised. And so, again, then for the bruised reed, someone is coming to them who isn't bruised in that same way because they have the strength and the power of God. So, a prophet brings real hope. Because it brings real love and real power as God works in them. This is great, isn't it? I mean, this sounds wonderful. This is incredible. You don't have to be a Christian to think this sounds good, do you? are like, man, everyone's going to be treated nicely, generously, fairly. Those who are in trouble are going to be helped. This sounds wonderful. Change we can believe in. Everyone loves that. Although some people may find it difficult. This idea that God loves everyone, there's hope for all. But actually, most people are like, yeah, you're going to be good to people? Good, I'm on board with that. No problem. We say, good, thought you would be. Because that's in your heart, because you were made by the God who speaks all this. But now, let's look at the message that the prophet brings. Because this is where things might get a little more problematic. You might be very happy with all that I've just said so far, but now something's going to come in that's going to challenge it. God says, this servant... That one, that's my chosen. That is the one, he is the one I have appointed. And there's an exclusivism in there already that starts to trouble people. It gets worse in verse five. Thus says God, the Lord. That's a definition. In your Bibles it probably has Lord in capital letters and that means that what was written there in the Hebrew uh, was the letters Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. It's the name of God. This isn't just a title, this isn't just a general thing, this is exactly who it is. So when God says, thus says God, Yahweh, saying, I am God, I am the Lord. If you have any other name for God, it's not right, Yahweh is God. And what Yahweh has done has been to create the heavens and stretch them out and to spread out the earth and everything that comes from it, and to give breath to the people who walk on it, and spirit to those in, to those who walk in it. And so, what Yahweh is saying at this point is, I'm not just Israel's God; I'm everyone's God. I'm not just the God of that small area. I'm not just a God who got something started, or the God of the daytime, or anything like that. I'm Lord of everything. Everything you have, God says, comes from me. I made it, I sustain it. The reason it's here right now, the reason you're here right now, God says, is because I made you. The breath you have in you, God says, is only there because I am putting it in there and allowing you to be sustained and continued. This means that we are not our own. It means that when we disagree with God, we're wrong. And... This is kind of teaching that gets fewer general you know, fans and gratitude and excitement about it. And it goes on in verse eight. I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. You think, wow, that's, that's awkward. That's socially awkward for us right now. <laughs> that's not the kind, of, I mean, I'm very happy to tell everyone about the first half, no problem. Generally less keen on the second half. But the Bible is absolutely clear. And this passage is absolutely clear. You cannot separate the two. They're intimately woven into each other. <coughs> Let's see how that works. It's confusing, isn't it? It is difficult. Christians struggle with this. See, some Christians are just lovely to everyone and think, that's oh, all fine. And there's other people who are very shouty to everyone and no loving. loving anything. How do I reconcile these two things? It's difficult even if you're not a Christian, because we live in a culture that says, you know, it's it's nice people who don't tell other people what to believe, and it's nasty people who do tell other people what to believe, obviously apart from the person who says that. Um, but in general, that's what's you know it's confusing for people. Most people don't think these two things exist together. But Isaiah forty two shows us someone who is both clearly incredibly loving and incredibly uncompromising. I wonder if that reminds you of anyone. Isaiah 42 is the first of four servant songs in Isaiah. These are songs that declare the nature of one who was promised. And this promised one actually is talked about all the way through the Old Testament. There's a sense amongst the prophets and amongst all God's people that they can never quite get it right by themselves. that They are always not quite um, in fact, often not even near to being quite. They completely ruin it, left to themselves. And it's a sense of if only one would come to us, if only one would come for us, who could represent God to us and represent us to God, who could live a perfect life in the way that we never can. If only there was someone who could come in and break in, who could be a rescuer for us. And then when you read through the Gospels, you start to hear people thinking about Jesus. They start to say, oh, hang on. He just did that thing. That's like what... The promised prophet was like, and this builds and builds and builds, and I think it is. It, it, by the end, and obviously, Jesus said this the whole time: "Like, this is the one, this is the one we have been waiting for, the one who can rescue us." And Jesus' love and care look just like what we've described in Isaiah forty-two: the sick and the stupid and the sinners, he's right there with them. The people who are trapped, he's there setting them free. The people who can't see, he's there giving them. Sights, the people who are wandering in darkness, he is shining his light. He's caring. He is compassionate. He seems to have almost an infinite ability to do this. And those people who he cares for and loves and heals and is tender towards, he says the most outrageous, uncompromising things to, and to everyone else as well. He says to them, not just that he's a prophet, but that he commissioned all the other prophets. All the prophets that have been centuries before were sent by this one who's now standing before them all, telling them this. And he says everything they were talking about was about me, and I have fulfilled all of it. And it's not just that I have the word of God like they had the word of God, I am the word of God. And it's not just that I have the truth like they have the truth, I am the truth. I'm not just hearing, I'm not just showing you what God is like, I am God. I'm the only way to God. That's what Jesus says. He can hold these two things together. Most people choose one or the other. It's easier that way, isn't it? And if people have an opinion of Jesus, that's kind of how it falls, one way or the other. He's really lovely or he's really crazy. Because you can't think of someone who's really crazy and really lovely or someone who's really lovely and really crazy. It just seems difficult. Actually, the Bible acknowledges that as well. The Bible says these things, we're we, we used to them being separate. But Jesus is the fullness of all things. He is the ultimate expression of all truth and all goodness and all love. He is therefore the lion and the lamb. He's both those things together. The cross is where those points come and find their fullness. Jesus goes to the cross in an attitude of exclusivity. He says to them, none of you can do this. I'm the only one who can do this. I'm the one chosen by God to do it. I'm the one who has given the Spirit so that I will go and do this. You can't do it. And what is the cross but the ultimate expression of love? He says, I'm the only one who can do it, but you need me to do it. And so I'm going to do it. I'm giving myself to you. I'm giving myself for you. And I alone can do it. And so the cross is the point where this this phenomenal love and this uncompromising truth come together and exist in the person and the mission of Jesus. So, what does a prophet look like? What do they say and what do they do? They, we, should be the most loving, most generous, most compassionate people on the planet with the most uncompromising message that there is only one way to be saved and rescued, and to know God. I wonder, do your friends and your colleagues experience that when they uh, first meet you and when they discover you're a Christian? Maybe you're visiting us today and this has been surprising for you. You've been in a meeting, you're like, well, this was a lot more joyful than I expected, and um, I was welcomed, and people were keen to see me. I thought if you're a Christian you're serious about this kind of stuff, you would be neither of those things. People see this when, we, they say, uh, when we're serving. So I know yesterday there 20 or 30 of you were here for a, a training day for safe families for children. There's Scotland, this initiative that's helped, that, by which we're helping families who are in need across this city. And a lot of you are saying, yes, I want to be a part of that. I know others of you have been involved in the night shelter where we've been hosting homeless people over the winter. I know others of you are involved in other ways in which you're serving and loving and being generous and caring to people. And people are surprised by that because they're like, wow, that's amazing. And so you say, oh, well, you must be kind of really lovely about all those other things. Like, yeah, all the stuff that, i you sure you don't believe that and that and that and that? And they say, well, I mean, yeah, I do. I do believe Jesus is the only way. I do believe that what he's said is right. And therefore, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong compared to him. It's been interesting seeing uh, over the last couple of years, Pope Francis and the Archbishop of Canterbury doing this really well consistently. I mean, I, there's a lot I would disagree with on the Pope and there's a few things i disagree with with the Archbishop, but they keep doing the good deeds. They keep, they're keep they generous. They're, you know, the Pope's washing immigrants' feet. Uh, the Archbishop is fighting for justice in uh, financial services and stuff like that. People are like, great, amazing, love that. They must be on our side on all the other things. And then they affirm what the Bible's always taught about marriage and they affirm what the Bible's always taught about Jesus. And people are like, no, hang on, hang on. No, because you were doing the nice things. And now this is the nasty thing. What's going on with that? We're called to live that way. It's a prophetic way of living that we hold fully onto the love of God and the truth of God. And because it's prophetic, there's a subversiveness to it. There's something about prophetic that it, it cuts across what's expected. It goes against what people are thinking, usually because God's saying, I need to speak this to you right now. You need to hear this. And it's not what you're expecting to hear. But that's what prophets are called to do. And there's power in it. And I want to show you an area in which God's working in amazing power. Um, And it's just going to encourage you, I hope. This week, uh, you may know, is the start of Ramadan. Ramadan is the ninth month in the Islamic year. And the year works on a a lunar pattern, so it changes each year exactly when it is. It's now. Ramadan is one of the five pillars of Islam. And uh, Muslims, those who are healthy and able to, are meant to fast from food and drink all the hours of daylight in the day for the whole month. Can you imagine how hard that is in Scotland? You know, I, I mean, I don't even know what time it gets light in the morning, but it's, it's early. Well, the way it works is that Muslims would go and have a meal together. Many of them would have a meal together in the morning, and they fast from everything all day long, and then have another meal in the evening. And they're meant to abstain from sex and from smoking and from other things that would distract them. They're meant to spend more time focusing on spiritual things and praying. And then it will end with the celebration of Eid at the end of the month. So Muslims all over the world right now are seeking God and praying to, to have revelation of God, and to understand God. I don't need to tell you there's a long, intense history between Christians and Muslims. I'm not speaking for Muslims, but certainly from a Christian perspective, there's many times where Christians have been uncompromising on the truth, and that has led them uh, to actual violence. People have seen that and responded against it, thought, okay, well, clearly having the uncompromising truth is what causes the problem. So let's say there's no difference between us, and then we should be fine, yeah? But that doesn't fix it either. We've seen today that a prophetic people are called to be both amazingly loving. And amazingly faithful to the truth. They're meant to do both things. They're meant to follow the pattern of Jesus. Jesus didn't kill people because they disagreed with him. He died for them. And that's how we're to live. And that's what we're to believe. And as God has been getting our mindsets right on this, and the church across the world, he's been able to do something really, really remarkable. And I want to just tell you a bit about it. Here's a story I read this week. Mashir, a man in his 60s from the Middle East, was once an extremely devout Muslim and did everything required by the law of the prophet. But I desired more, he says, I felt very empty and distant from the God I prayed to every day. 24 years ago, during Ramadan, Mashiach was fasting and praying. He was in a room in his house crying out to God and asking to really know him. Suddenly a picture fell from the wall and smashed into pieces. It was an old picture with a traditional painting that had been on the wall for years. But behind the original was a picture of Jesus Christ on the cross. I was speechless, shocked, says Meshire, and in my heart I knew this was the answer to what I had asked for. I knew that I had found God. God had shown me who he was. Jesus Christ was his answer. And I'm going to put a bunch of links in the small group notes this week to other stories like that. But I know sometimes we're like, oh, that's a story over there in the distance. I mean, who knows what really happened? So I thought we'd tell you a story that's happened to someone, who know, someone who's part of this church who they know really well. So, Deborah, why don't you come up and mic. Can I have a microphone, please? So, Deborah, could you tell us what your mum was doing when she was 13 or so?
1: Um, so my mum was raised in a, a Muslim family in the north of Nigeria, um, yeah, and age 13. Um, she had a dream, because um, she was raised as a Muslim, was doing fasting um, and all the prayers every day, but she, it kind of felt a bit weird. She didn't really know why. And then age 13, she had a dream. And in that dream, um, various numbers of psalms were revealed to her. Um, And if any of you guys know me, um, my mum's quite like me, we're quite loud, expressive. Um, And so, yeah, after that dream, um, being in a family who are very strong Muslims, she just kind of went really quiet and didn't talk to anyone. Um, Yeah, and she was just, like, really kind of scared about how her family would react. She didn't know what this dream meant, what was going on. Um, And then it got to a point that her mum got quite worried about her. Um, and so her mum took her to the side and she asked her, um, What's going on? I won't tell. She was like, I won't tell anyone. Just tell me. It'll be our secret. And so, yeah, my mum then uh, told her mum about this dream. Um, and well, thankfully, um, God gave her a mum who was just really understanding. And her mum actually gave her money to go out and buy her first Bible. Um, and so, obviously, this was. Kind of weird for my mum. She was like, okay, you've raised me as a Muslim all my life and now you're giving this money to me to go. So my mum went um, and being from the north of Nigeria, which is predominantly Muslim, it meant that Bibles were really expensive there. They were only sold to like tourists and things like that. So she ended up buying a Gideon Bible with New Testament and Psalms because that's what they were selling there. She still has that book to this day. (laughs) Yeah, and so she then read the Psalms and yeah, the Spirit just revealed um, Christ to her um, and that He was the only way and God's love on her and her life. And yeah, from that day forward, she gave her life to Christ and was living for Him. Amazing.
0: So great. Brilliant. Thanks, everyone. Yes. There are so many stories uh, like that. There's something about that, even there's a, there's a sovereignty of God in that. You think, well, He didn't need us. Actually, it's God's will that he involves us, and he wants to. And so I want us to move on to think about how he's doing that. Here's a report from The Guardian uh, last week, headlined, European churches say growing flock of Muslim refugees are converting. And the report goes on to say, At Trinity Church in the Berlin suburb of Steglitz, the congregation has grown from 150 two years ago to almost 700, swollen by Muslim converts, according to Pastor Gottfried Martins. Earlier this year, churches in Berlin and Hamburg reportedly held mass conversions for asylum seekers at municipal swimming pools, by which they mean baptisms. (laughs) And the report does actually a fair job, it's a fair article, and they, they say, complex factors behind the trend include heartfelt faith in a new religion, gratitude to Christian groups offering support during perilous and frightening journeys as well as an expectation that conversion may aid asylum applications, which has also been in the news recently this week, and actually the report does a good job of explaining how churches are very graciously making sure that that's not uh, the motivation, and doing that, I think, a better job than UK visas and immigration, Um, by whose standards maybe not all of us would be allowed in the country as Christians. But anyway, God is doing something, and he can just do it by himself, but actually he's doing it involving his people. All this is just the tip of the iceberg. A guy called David Garrison has done a load of research on this and has uh, published it in a book called A Wind in the House of Islam. And he went out to find what he described as uh, movements of Muslims to Christ. And he said that he defines a, mo- a movement as either a hundred new churches being planted or a thousand believers being baptised in a Muslim-dominated culture. So that's his bar. That's what he's looking for. And he has recorded, in the 21st century, 69 of these around the world. This is absolutely unprecedented in history. This is, there are like, there's been one or two here and there that are recorded anyway, and now suddenly a phenomenal scale of God's work is happening around the world. And he, is, you know, he says there's obviously a load of things going on in this. Christians are praying People are having the opportunity to hear and see more than they previously had heard and saw. But he also says this, that Christians have changed their attitude to Muslims from antagonism or ignoring to loving them and to talking about Jesus rather than difference. And obviously you get to difference when you talk about Jesus, but that's not where you start. God is doing an amazing work, an amazing thing, and he involves us. He calls us to be part of it. To live as a prophetic people is to be involved in this kind of thing. Maybe, I'm just saying this because it is Ramadan, maybe you've got Muslim uh, friends or colleagues right now. Ask them how it's going. Ask them how they are. Ask them if they're, if they're fasting. Ask them if there's anything you can do to help. You know, maybe you need to be the one doing some heavy lifting for them. Maybe you usually eat lunch at your desk and it would, be, it would just be helpful if you didn't. Offer to show them the love of God. And then pray for opportunities to speak about Jesus and for that to be who the discussion is about and who uh, you want to talk about. Pray for opportunities. Pray for dreams as God breaks in. Let the Spirit help you work out where you need to build a bridge where people understand, yes, I can come. This is something that could be accessible for me. And sometimes you need to build walls as well. to Say, no, there is actually a difference. But it's a wall with a door in, obviously. But this is the fullness that we're to live in. This is what to be a prophetic people is, that we hold the love of God and the truth of God totally together because they're found together in Jesus and at the cross. And they're our message. God wants to involve us in this. The last line that we read said, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. What does a prophet look like? What do they say and do? They imitate Jesus, relying on the transforming power of his divine love. They are radically loving and they're radically truthful. Most people find one or other of these easier. I wonder which that is for you. Don't rely on your own efforts or preferences. Don't say, I'm more of a truth person or I'm more of a love person. That's a completely false dichotomy in the gospel. If we ask the Holy Spirit of God to come and empower us, if we reflect on this gospel of great love and great exclusive truth, God will work in us and can work through us. We'll be able to do both these things. And we'll demonstrate to people who God really is, what he's really like, what he is saying and doing to them and to the whole earth. Why don't we pray? going to give you three things to ask God for. Maybe it's the compassion that we started with, uh, this generous, almost ridiculous love that God has that is so broadly, deeply, extraordinarily given. Every good thing that anyone experiences on this earth comes from God. He's amazingly loving. And you think, I'm, yeah, I'm nowhere near that. Maybe you need the compassion of God. Just ask Holy Spirit, love is a fruit of the Spirit. Please come and work in me. Please, as I consider this gospel, that God gave His Son for me, a sinner. Would this love grow in my heart? Maybe what you need is clarity. This uncompromising message that the prophets bring, that we declare. Jesus is God, but he is the only way for salvation, for hope in this life and the next. And there you need a conviction of that for yourself. Ask God for that, to impress his truth upon your heart. And then maybe it's boldness. You you do kind of know these things already. You do kind of try and live them out, but to do it in a new way, to do it in a clear way like we've seen today. You think, I just know that's hard for me. You ask now that a Holy Spirit of boldness would fall on you. Acts tells us that when the believers prayed, they were filled with the Spirit and they went out boldly. Not just the leaders, all of them. Holy Spirit, why don't you ask him, give you the boldness for this week. Lord, we thank you that you have been gracious to us. That you didn't fudge the issue, that you loved us and you rescued us. That Jesus, you are the lamb who was slain and the lion of the tribe of Judah who roars over the earth, but it is yours. We thank you that this fullness, we see it in the cross. We've experienced it in our lives. We want to share it with others as well. Help us to be this prophetic people who hold these two great, important things together, the love of God, the truth of God. That your name might be known, that we might be involved in this great movement that you're doing around the world of people hearing about you, really meeting you, and coming into your kingdom. Give us grace for that, Lord, we pray. Amen.